So we are back in Leviticus, okay? Uh, we are moving on. I want to highlight something last week, and I, I got to tell you, it's not just because it's my job to tell you, but I got to tell you, if you miss a message, please listen to it online. You will miss the step that we took last week if you skip it. Um, so we understand summer schedule, vacation, sleeping late, all that jobs, whatever, all that stuff happens from time to time. But last week we discovered something really important and that was our obedience determines, it truly does determine the depth of our relationship with God. Our obedience to his word determines the, 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 the health, you could say, of the relationship that we have. We talked about fasting and Sabbath rest um, last week, and I gave you homework. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I hope you did your homework and fasted a meal or more and took some time to rest this week. Um, if you're interested to know more about what that means, listen to last week's message. Today, we're jumping into a new section of the book of Leviticus, and this section is what Bible scholars call the holiness code. Now, the holiness code in Leviticus covers about 10 chapters from chapter 17 to 26. Trust me, I am not covering all 10 chapters today, okay? So everybody just breathe that sigh of relief. Um, the holiness code is oriented by this idea that the people themselves, listen to me, bear the responsibility for holiness as a result or a response to their relationship with God. If I could say it another way, and maybe in general terms, sometimes, well, we say this when we, when we pray, and we say this often. I hope that you hold this in your heart too. Our God is a miracle worker, but he is not a magician. So that means there's a human element. There's a free will element. So yes, Christ's sacrifice on the cross paid for your sins. You have to choose daily to die to those sins and to say no to the devil and to resist temptation. We've got, we've got work to do. God doesn't just wave a wand and it's done. We've got work. And if you're human like I am, you, you had work to do this past week and you're going to have work to do this coming week on your spiritual life. Those choices, those challenges that we face. So we have a responsibility to make good choices and live a life that pleases God. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, since we're talking about the title today would be the holiness code. Leviticus 19, verse 2 says this, and this is really, this appears several times throughout Leviticus during these passages. It says this, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. This phrase gets repeated at least five times, very like verbatim, word for word, within those 10 chapters. And what we've talked about when we talk about holiness, now you got to understand this, this seems like it might be a tall order when God says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. In another place in scripture, God actually says that we're to be perfect. We all celebrate the fact that we're, oh, I'm just imperfect. Sorry I said that. No, well, listen, God actually says that we should be because he is. We should be walking and attempting to live a life that he wants us to live according to our understanding of holiness. It doesn't just mean pure and without sin, okay? How many of you have ever met somebody who acted holier than thou? <laughs> Woo. Um, you probably don't hang out with them often, do you? Okay, nod your head no, right? We don't do that. But here's the deal. It can mean, and it does mean, pure and without sin, but it also implies this thing. And we talked about it during our series. It means separated, 
called and put aside for a special purpose. God himself is saying, if I'm holy and you're my kids, you better act like me. You better do what I, I say. So I'm holy. His, his logic is flawless in this. I am holy and that which belongs to me is holy, should be holy. And that means that we've got some work to do. Look at your neighbor and say, amen. <laughs> uh, Leviticus chapter 17 and 18, they focus on personal worship violations. Okay. This is a switch from the previous 16 chapters. You've heard me talk about something that we call ritual impurity. That was, you couldn't show up to the house of God without the right offering. You couldn't uh, have touched a dead body and then come to the church. You would have defiled that holy space of God. And we call that ritual impurity. That was infractions that would happen or occur that would cause us to uh, have a punishment. But also, we could just offer a sacrifice and make it right. If we would do what God says he wants us to do, and then we would make it right. So then in chapter 17, though, this shift happens where we begin to talk about something that we will call moral impurity. This is, this is sin. This is the real deal. This is stuff you can't mess with, can't play around with. In fact, in those days before Christ, look up at me, church, listen. Before Christ, there were two options. You got killed or you got cast out. I know you've thought about that with your own kids. No, I'm kidding. But God is, God did it with his kids. He, he, he said to the people of Israel, if you kill a man, you're, you're going to get the death penalty yourself or you're going to be excommunicated, left out because there was no redemption for sin. So we live in good days, y'all. <laughs> the days of Jesus Christ and, and after his death and resurrection because we have the ability to be purged and made clean, the Bible says, from our moral impurity. Not just I did something not in the right way at the house of God, but I did something wrong and the sickness of my soul came out and I really need God to help me make sure that that goes away. He can do that now through the work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at some of the items in chapter 17. We're not going to get into 18 uh, this week, but we'll look at chapter 17. So if you have it uh, in your Bible, you can go there. If not, the verses will be on the screen. Chapter 17, verse 3 and 4. It says this, If any one of those of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, okay, that was church, okay, to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed or given or responsible to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Jump down to verse seven, it says this. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. This is some weird language, okay? Goat demons, and he's talking about the people of God going after them in the way that a prostitute would engage a client. 
he, he's, he's saying that the Israelite people are doing something that is morally unacceptable. You see, if you'll remember in our message series a few weeks back, we talked about the fact that some Israelites believed that there were other entities that lived out in the wilderness, supernatural beings, if you will, that lived out in the wilderness. And some of them got this cockamamie idea, this nutty idea that they could offer a sacrifice to those things to either appease them or to worship them possibly. And they were doing that. They were killing an animal, sacrificing that animal, not at God's house, not at the door to his house, but out there in the camp where we heard about the two goats, one that's given to Azazel. And if you're interested in that, that's in the day of atonement passages. That's what they were doing. They were sending a goat out to the wilderness, to the place that God doesn't own because he owns the land where the people are, the people of Israel, and he deserves their worship in that place. So God is telling his people to bring their sacrifice to the tent of meeting because that's where he has commanded the sacrifice to be brought. How many of you have ever asked somebody to do something a specific way and they did not do it the specific way that you mentioned? Please, <laughs> some of you go, oh, don't I know? The story of my life, okay? Yes, we have all experienced that. What does that elicit? What sort of feeling does that elicit in you? Anger, frustration, murderous thought? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but definitely we have this idea in our head of like, why didn't you trust me? Why didn't you listen? Why didn't you do it the way I said? The way I said is the way I prefer because I want it done that way. So you might not be like me. You may just be, oh, it's fine. It just got done. It's beautiful and wonderful. No, but there are lots of us that deal with this idea of, hey, I asked you to do it this way. God is that way. And he says, whoa, I said, you need to bring this to the, to the entrance of my house because I'm the one that deserves this worship, not those other entities that y'all think is out there. I deserve the worship. You can't just worship him in those days anywhere you wanted. You can worship him these days in your car, at a church, in a prison cell, in a psych ward. You can worship him anywhere on the face of this earth because it's different now. Back then, he was trying to teach and engage his people to understand that he lives. He actually resides with his people and he deserves their worship. Not 50% of it, not 99% of it. Literally, all worship and honor belong to him. So the idea here is that they were doing something that displeased him, not in a way of not just doing something right ritually, but that they were actually giving of themselves or their heart in a different direction. Now, you and I have that same problem even today. The challenges that we face in the distracted world we live in, in the crazy world that we live in, there are lots of things vying for your attention. And God says, I got to be first the idea that this transgression is against God is present there because it involves his worship and what belongs to him and how he wants to be worshiped. This is not a matter of just being ritually impure or doing, oh, I just forgot to cross a T or dot an I. This is my heart is not in the right place. The penalty in verse four, bring that back up for us if you would, Christine. In verse four, it says this, that they will, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of the verse, it says, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Now, hear me, church. This is a divine penalty. 
God is going to eliminate them in some way, shape, or form because of the sin that they are committing if they don't course correct right away. God has been sinned against, and he will be the one who punishes them. So essentially, I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but essentially they're going to be excommunicated. They're going to be ostracized, set out of the camp. You cannot come back ever. Not for Christmas. (laughs) You cannot come back ever. So you're going to be cut off. It's the idea that we have in certain instances in scripture when it uses that phrase to be cut off. It's talking about the offender's bloodline being terminated. That means not only are you cast out, but God by divine right and will is not going to allow you to have children or he's going to make sure that your children die and there will be no more line of you left. This was really important to the people back then because your name was the thing that people remembered. They, they, they had this understanding and we still have that today that if someone passes away, we talk about the things they did, but who they were and their line of descendants is really important, Right? Nod your head, yes? So they understood that back then too. So he himself may not have been put to death for committing this crime, this sin against God, but there's the possibility that God would cause his name to die out. So not only was he cast out of the community, but God was going to deal with him in a way that wouldn't allow him to have descendants. His name would end. And for those ancient people, it was a serious thing for that to have happened. There are other uh, passages that actually imply a denial in the afterlife of being able to be reunited with your family. In other words, you're going to be cut off from the people who did worship God, which in our understanding today would say there are two destinations in eternity. And if you're not going to see your family, that means you're not going to the place they're going to. You're going to another place. So this is, this is what the understanding is, even in the Old Testament, that there would be a separation because this was such a big deal to God. So there'd be a loss of ancestry in the sense of your own descendants, but God is also saying he will cut this person off in the afterlife. In fact, you can hear David cry out in the Psalms as he's talking about people who are committing morally impure acts. And they're, they're committing them against him as a king, but also against God and his name. He says, wipe them out. Don't let them last past the second generation. This is a serious thing that's happening in scripture. When you see the words cut off, now you have a little bit better understanding of what that might look like. Okay, verse 10 to 12. Jump there with me. This is kind of interesting. It talks about consuming blood. Now, we have talked about some strange stuff in church uh, so far. <laughs> And not next week because we have a guest speaker, but the following week is going to be probably the strangest message you ever heard because it comes from the book of Leviticus and there's a bunch of weird stuff in there, but we don't shy away from the weird stuff. Amen. Okay. So let's look at verse 10 and let's glean from it a few things that we're going to try to apply to our own lives. Verse 10 says this, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Here that wording is again. Look up at me for just a second. When he says, I will set my face against them, that's a punishment. That's not a a pleasurable thing. If you greet somebody at the door today, you got a handshake, a hug. Hey, good morning. It's great to see you. That's me not setting my face against you, but setting my face towards you. 
if I was to turn my back as you entered and say, not talking to you. If I did that, I would be setting my face against you, like away from you. So God is saying, this is a big deal. And you say, wait, does that mean I can't eat a medium rare steak? (laughs) We're going to talk about that. Verse 11 says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you or given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. A lot of people would jump straight into the New Testament and thinking about Jesus, and that's important. You ought to do that, but you ought to know God's plan has been enacted for a long time. He's leading up to something, and he's all of the, we could probably estimate millions of, of livestock and animals and fowl and birds and whatever have been killed on the altars of the Israelite people, all for them to understand this single place in scripture, that the life of something is held in the blood. This isn't a scientific statement that they're trying to be, you know, in pre-ancient days, but he's saying to them, I have given you the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it's the blood that makes atonement by its life. Jews in Jesus' day, when they heard him teaching and preaching, would have understood that as he's talking about the giving of his life, they would have had bells go off thinking about all of the traditional understanding they had from the Old Testament, from the old scriptures. Verse 12 says this, Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. How many of you like a steak? Just raise your hand. Praise the Lord. I'm in good company today. I like steak too. The pastor is not telling you that you cannot eat a steak that is medium, medium rare, whatever. I don't care what you do. And I don't think God does these days what you do. Back then he was trying to prove a point. Blood belongs to me. I'm the giver of life. I've commanded you to take this life because of the thing that's gone wrong to be able to redeem or fix or restore the situation. And that's my plate. You can't have any. So there were other cults during that time and other religions during the time of the Israelites. You got to think, I mean, I know we read the Bible, we think maybe they were the only people on the earth. No, there were other people worshiping false gods and they were doing other ritual sacrifices. They were throwing their children. The Bible says in Leviticus 20, they were throwing their children alive in a fire, human children, and sacrificing to them to a God called Molech. They were doing lots of weird stuff. They were drinking blood in these other religions and these other things. And the Israelites are called to be holy. They're called to be set apart and different. So God is trying to prove that point. We always say this, that context deepens our understanding of the content. So like I said, I really believe that the understanding here is that it was, it was an offense to God because you're taking what belonged to him. That's offensive to him. <laughs> it's offensive to you. If somebody steals, breaks into your house and takes something that belongs to you, that would be offensive to you. Okay. It, it irks you. So God takes this as a personal violation. Remember they're pre like they're ancient people. This is before all the other understandings that we would have today about blood and all of that. But in the sacrificial system, there was this core idea of substitution. I hinted at it a moment ago, but 
The concept there is of sacrifice. And as that sacrifice happens, it meant that God would accept the blood that he could rightfully get from you. He will accept a substitution, the blood of an animal in your place. I hope you see this today. Jesus Christ has become the one and the only sacrifice for all time, for all mankind, for all sin. He has become the substitutionary sacrifice for us. He was laid on an altar, the Bible says. It would be a cross of wood. We could consider that and understand that to be something that was developed by human hand for an excruciating death. But he suffered and died for us. And God didn't leave him dead. In fact, it says the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And the Bible gives us this confidence that the same spirit that raised him from the dead lives inside of you as a believer. So Romans chapter three tells us this, that all have sinned. Romans chapter six tells us that the penalty for sin, moral impurity, the penalty for it is death. The wages of sin is death, it says. That's what the payment is. Jesus Christ died in our place when he was crucified on that cross. He died the death that we deserved because we're the ones who are sinful. The Bible tells us, and our theology reinforces this from the word of God, Jesus lived an entire 33 years without sin. He was a human. Let's not forget he was a human and he was God. A lot of people say, well, you know, is it possible to go a day without sin? I believe it is. With the Holy Spirit's empowerment, I don't have to sin if I don't choose to sin. If I really live in submission to him, which is hard, (laughs) It's really hard because my monster that lives inside of me, my flesh is always warring against that spirit. But when I give in to him, it's possible for us to live without sin for moments, for days. Amen. Listen to what Paul says about this, about Jesus Christ substituting himself in taking what we deserved. Second Corinthians five, verse 21. It says this, for our sake, he, and that would be God, the father, made him, that would be God the Son, to be sin. We define God and the character of God as good and faithful and just and righteous and all those things. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be determined or defined by this word sin in those moments of his death. It says he was made to be sin, okay, that we who knew, he who knew no sin, he's the one who helped us to become known as the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he satisfied the payment that was due for your sinfulness. I believe he deserves your life. If you could understand it in this, uh, in this way, he deserves your life, your living life for the rest of your days because he died to set you free to live for him. 
So you didn't have to be the sacrifice on the cross. He is. He took care of that. He's the only one that could. You can't do anything to earn it. I know I joked a minute ago about trying to pay God back. I can't do that. I honestly don't believe that. We cannot do that. But God had already set into motion thousands of years before Christ arrived that you have got to be looking for life in the flesh and blood being poured out because that's the only sacrifice I'll take and he will take it from only the thing that's perfect, spotless, blameless, without sin. We already talked about that earlier. He wouldn't take the maimed sheep, the blind sheep, the whatever. He That stunk in his nose, metaphorically. He said, no, 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 I deserve the best and I deserve the first. And he truly does. And he's, and he's got it. He got it through sending his son to be that sacrifice. This is good. So, If you think about it like this, you could only pay the price of your sin on your own by being punished and being placed in hell for all eternity. And that's, that's option B. Okay. Please don't take option B. Take, take door number A. That's got the prize behind it. Okay. God's son, Jesus Christ came to earth for us to pay the price that you can't afford, that you truly can't afford. Because he did this, we have the opportunity to not only have our sins forgiven and to spend eternity with him, but, but also, I should say, to spend eternity with him. So we don't just get the freedom in the here and now, the 60, 80 years that your life might live, but we also get to actually be with him for all eternity and not to be experiencing the punishment for our sin. You cannot save yourself. You got to believe that, that you need a substitute to take your place. Listen to what John 14, verse six says. Jesus said to those people gathered, he said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Can your pastor just share with you from my heart for just a brief moment? Just nod your head. I got one. That's good. Okay. No, plenty. Here's the deal. There are not many roads that lead to heaven. I know that breaks political correctness and all that other stuff that you hear about. There is no other way to live with God forever in bliss and enjoyment in the presence of God unless we have accepted the only way, the truth, and the life, which is his son, Jesus Christ. We've got to believe that inherently and we've got to share that. I'm not telling you to be the guy on the street with a Bible shop and a scripture verse at a passerby. That's, I don't believe God's pleased with that. That's me. But he does want us to live a life that draws people's attention to what God's done inside of us. He wants to make a change inside of you. And even if you've already been changed by salvation, he's still got work to do. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, Amen. He's still got work to do. Worship team, would you join me? I want to explain to you quickly uh, what we're about to do, okay? And that is, we do this every week, every Sunday. What we do is we have the worship team come back up and they play a song for a moment. It gives us a moment to kind of wrap up our service in a meaningful way where we can connect with God. So that's what I want you to do today. And you say, well, pastor, you talked about like blood sacrifice and some other stuff. What, what am I supposed to get or gain out of this? Let, let me tell you some things that I want you to consider today. Here's a question that I thought of, which is, am I giving God all my worship? 
Now, I wanna correct your thinking and help you. Worship is not the slow song they're about to play, although we do call that worship. It's not the amount of money that you put in an offering. It's not the serving on a team here in the church. Those things are considered acts of worship or expressions of worship, but they are not truly defining of what worship really is. There are plenty of definitions that the church has used over years. And we talk about music and we talk about giving of our lives and all of that stuff. But there's one in particular that really helps kind of encapsulate everything that we want to today. Worship is a spiritual discipline. And here's what it means. It means to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. That comes from Webster's, Daniel Webster's dictionary that he hand wrote in the 1800s. That's his definition of worship. His understanding of the original word was that it involves the honor and the extravagant love given to one entity and also extreme submission. Can I just be real with you? I don't like being extremely submitted to anything. Except for my own self, my own will, my own desire, right? This is a measure of discipline in our lives that we are to extravagantly love. If I extravagantly love God, then I'm not gonna shut up about him. I'm gonna lead people to conversations about my church. I'm gonna share the love of Christ with others. I'm gonna treat them as Christ would want me to treat rather than me treat them the way I really know they deserve, praise God. Because I'm gonna extravagantly love him. So. So how much of your worship are you giving to God? Is there distraction in your life? Is there something that's setting you on a course and a path that kind of directs you out to the wilderness, as it were, to go chase after other things? Maybe it's an achievement at work or something else. But how much of our worship is going in the direction of God himself? See, true worship, in other words, true worship is defined by the priority that we place on who God is in our lives and where he lists or where he falls rather in our list of priorities. I've referenced Ricky Bobby before and I'll reference him again. Talladega Nights, that movie. I don't suggest or sponsor the movie, but he has something silly that he says. He says, if you ain't first, you're last. If God's not first, he's not really God in your life. He really is somewhere else on your list of priorities. So where does he fall? Only you can determine that. Nobody in this room, I'm telling you what, as your pastor, you better not judge one another. Don't be looking around and say, well, I hadn't seen them drop much of the plate. They probably only worship him 50%. No, that's not your job. Dear Lord, help us to never be that church. But think for yourself today. Is there a place that maybe you're not giving him your all? He deserves it all because what you prioritize takes precedence. Lastly, the other thing I want you to consider besides worship, and that's for the believer who knows God and, and can just say, hey, I'm not walking in the way I should in the areas of my life and I need his help and his strength. The other is this, have you accepted his substitution for your awful, stinky, rotten, no good, self-centered, garbage-filled existence without him? 
powerful when you really think about it because everything in the world wants to blow you up and bloat your pride and make you feel wonderful and tell you you're everything and you're perfect. But God says you're nothing without me and your pastor. This guy is reaching out to you today to say if you understand that you need God, that you haven't accepted his substitutionary sacrifice for your sin, then today's your day. You've got to do that today. The invitation is here for you to respond in a way that says, I I want God in my life. I want to be a person who follows after him. I want to be holy like he's holy. How many of you have ever struggled with sin? Everybody can raise their hand, oldest to the youngest. We all know what it's like to struggle with sin, but God says you don't have to go it alone. He's given us the Holy Spirit at salvation. And if you've never accepted him and his love, his gift is free. If you've never accepted him, today is your day to do that. Would you stand with me? Consider, evaluate your life in the areas that you say, God, you know what? I don't think I'm giving you 100% in this area. Could be family, could be faith, could be finance. I don't know what it is. And then the other thought is this. Have you made a decision to follow Christ and to accept his sacrifice for your sin? Because you are sinful. We all are. So the question is, have we taken that free gift and opened it up and allowed it to invade our hearts? Would you close your eyes and bow your heads for just a moment? If you're here today, and I'm not going to... We're not doing a five minute long sort of call for this. I'm just telling you, if you sense that in your heart and you wanna make a decision and say today, I believe in Jesus Christ as my salvation and I want that gift, shoot up your hand right now, raise your hand. Nobody else is looking around, but there are people raising their hands. Father, I thank you today for those who are making a decision to step out in faith and believe you are the God you say you are. So, Father, I pray that you would help them to walk through this life and this decision. We're going to do that with you, church. So if you made that decision and you'd like to talk to us after the service or even during prayer in just a moment, we want you to do that. Now you can take your eyes and look at me real quick. Look at this wall over here. See that little prayer station? Look at that wall over there. Meg is going to go to this wall. I'll be over here. I'm going to turn my microphone off. If you need prayer for any reason, if you need something in your marriage, if you need healing in your body, if you need financial help, or if you're the person who raised your hand and said, I want to make a decision of faith today and I want somebody to explain this more, step out to those prayer centers while Amy leads us in this last song. We'd love to pray with you today.